Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It's safe to say that we are living in the middle of an anger epidemic. In 2009, an NPR-IBM Watson Health poll found that 84% of Americans say we are angrier now than we were a generation ago. 42% of respondents claim that they were angrier now than they were further back in time. And an overwhelming 89% of participants said they were mad because of the news and or social media. Like most of our emotions, anger may have a positive function. Some scientists suggest that anger developed to help individuals bargain effectively with others. By being angry, the other person may recalculate the importance of the person's welfare. So ideally, anger works so that in a dispute, if I make it clear that I'm angry, then you might be more willing to listen to what it is that I need. Now, of course, the problem is it's not a perfect world, so things rarely work out the way that we want them to. So anger poses two problems. The first is that it can often benefit those with social bargaining power. Rather than equalizing the playing field, it seems as though anger is more effective when it's wielded by those who are stronger, more powerful, or even more attractive. So anger may actually exacerbate relational inequalities, rather than solve them. The second problem is that anger can cause proliferation rather than resolution. You can think of many stories, like the Hatfields and the McCoys, or much of modern politics, for examples of how anger proliferates. Meanwhile, the Proverbs tell us that a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. So anger really is inherent to our fallenness. When Adam and Eve sinned, not only did it sever their relationship to God, but also to one another. We see this in the fact that one of the first sins the scripture records after the garden expulsion is Cain's murder of his own brother Abel out of jealousy and anger. So anger participates in fallen power dynamics. It becomes a way to solidify one's power over and against the other, which naturally comes with seeing the other as lesser than the self. We've all experienced this when our anger is directed at someone, that person who cut us off in traffic, someone in our family who has hurt or embarrassed us, someone in the workplace who doesn't do things the way that we think they should, a politician or a public figure who just gets on our nerves. We tend to view them as less than human, as an inconvenience, as something in our way. But in his incarnation, our Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, came to show us a different path. At the very heart of it was a humanizing love shown in the way that Jesus cared for those who were pushed to the margins of his society. And this is precisely why Jesus was responded to the way that he was. Those who are locked into the way of anger find this way of love that Christ reveals for us as threatening, but he invites us into it. And how do we enter into that way of love? Well, the answer was given to us this morning in our epistle reading from Romans. We enter through baptism. 
What is baptism? It's an outward sign of an inward grace. In baptism, we sprinkle a baby or an adult, and when we do, we know that the Holy Spirit is working in that person. And what does he affect? He remits sin and implants a new life in them. How? How does baptism do that? Well, according to St. Paul in our reading this morning, it's the fact that the mystery at the heart of baptism is the same paradox at the heart of our faith. That just as on the cross, Jesus achieved victory through death, so we come to baptism to die so that we might be made alive. Do you not know, St. Paul says, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Well, what are the implications for us because of our baptism then? St. Paul goes on to say, The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so our gospel lesson from the gospel according to St. Matthew this morning is Jesus teaching us about how we can consider ourselves dead to sin and live to God in Christ. In his teaching on the Sermon, Jesus, on, on, the sermon on the Mount, Jesus does what we call spiritualizing of the law so that we might walk in that newness of life. The Old Testament law is very important. It's important because it reveals to us God's holiness, and it shows us all the ways that we fall short of that standard. However, a list of rules, while important boundary markers for our behavior, don't always show us what we should do. Do not commit adultery necessarily means Be faithful to your spouse. But we could also skirt around that law in our thought lives. One might still have wrong desires, but so long as one doesn't cross the actual line, they can say that they've followed the command. So one could technically follow that law without being a good spouse. So Jesus internalizes the command. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus doesn't do away with the law. He elevates it. He holds us to an even higher standard. The law is no longer about what we do externally, but includes our whole being, our thoughts, and our desires. At the heart of this is an ethic that's permeated by love, and love does tend to be the hard way. As St. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Jesus, in our reading this morning, applies all of this to anger. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hellfire. St. Augustine tells us that there are three sins that fall under anger here. The first is the feeling of anger, which warrants judgment. The second is making an insulting remark, for which we are liable to the punishment of counsel. And the third and final, and probably the scariest when we experience it, is when that anger boils up so much that it blinds us, so that we lash out without even thinking. You fool, we might declare. This is liable to the hell of fire. As one commentator about our reading today says, this shows the gravity of external sins against charity, gossip, backbiting, etc. However, we should remember that these sins stem from the heart. Our Lord focuses our attention first on internal sins, resentment, hatred, etc. To make us realize that it is where the root lies and that it is important to nip anger in the bud. So what do we do? What is the new way that our Lord shows us? Well, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. These instructions remind us of the summary of the law that we hear every Sunday. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The commandments are so intricately intertwined that you don't get one without the other. If you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, then you love your neighbor as yourself. And when you love your neighbor as yourself, then you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So the way that we stamp out anger in ourselves is through love. And we inculcate that love for others in two ways. The first is that we always remember that love was extended to us by God when we were still yet unlovable. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. But second is that whenever we meet or talk to others, we remember that they are people for whom our Lord has shed his precious blood. It's true of that person that cut you off in traffic. It's true of that family member who hurt you. It's true of that bad boss who is over-demanding or the hard-to-get-along-with co-worker who's always seeming to show off and one-up you. It's true of Republicans and Democrats. It's true of Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Roman Catholics, Muslims. It's true of everyone. It's a hard but beneficial discipline to constantly remind ourselves of that when we encounter others, that no matter who they are, they're someone for whom Christ has died. The Navarre Bible adds this helpful note at the end of the passage. Brotherhood without parenthood is inconceivable. An offense against charity is above all an offense against God. 
So may we hear the words of our Lord this morning as he shows us a better way and let us follow his way of love. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.